This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Friday, January the 20th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, strap in for another edition of the Friday News Panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Three topics on deck today, including issues of food insecurity in Canada. There's also a story about the ethics of remote working from home, especially in the context of time theft. And we examine new alcohol consumption guidelines by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next two hours. Thank you for making some time to be with us live this morning on AMI-tv. Here is your top story. Wants the Liberals to make good on their promise to introduce a national pharmacare bill. And this is the, the framework necessary to move forward with uh, universal public pharmacare. And that's something that we fought for in the agreement. We negotiated and, and we expect to be there. We're going to continue to fight hard to make sure that actually happens. And it is a deal breaker? Well, it's a part of our agreement. So if they didn't do that, they would be breaking, they would be breaking the deal. Singh further elaborated on the steps necessary to reach a pharmacare deal. There's additional steps. By the next year, there has to be a bulk purchasing plan, which is to lay out uh, how it has to be, how we purchase medicine in bulk. Oh, sorry, before that, there has to be a formulary covering all the medication that has to be covered. So these are the three steps that need to be put in place by the end of the deal. A national pharmacare program was a key component of the confidence and supply deal the parties reached last year. Let's get you to some economy stories. The U.S. Treasury has officially begun implementing measures after the debt limit was reached yesterday. Reporter Elizabeth Shuzla explains what those measures are. What the Treasury Department is doing, and the simplest way to think about it, is these accounting steps that allow the government to keep borrowing money without actually crossing that limit, without reaching the ceiling. So it's kind of writing itself an IOU. U.S. President Joe Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have several months to reach an agreement as the measures enacted by the Treasury Department to keep the government operating until about June. And democracy remains difficult in America. Over to another economy story. Google is laying off 12,000 employees. Jim Ryan has that story. Talk of possible layoffs has been wafting through the cubicles and break rooms at Google for weeks. Now CEO Sundar Pichai has confirmed it in an email addressed to the people he calls Googlers. We've decided to reduce our workforce by approximately 12,000 roles, Pichai writes, adding that he's deeply sorry for that. He says the company embarked on a massive hiring spree for company growth that just hasn't materialized. Jim Ryan, ABC News. And earlier this week, the inflation data in Canada was released. It showed some inflationary pressures are easing. The Bank of Canada will be making its interest rate announcement next week. Despite some of the encouraging data on the inflation front, economists are still forecasting another rate hike. Desjardins economist Royce Mendez says it's still unclear if inflation has completely reversed course. The Bank of Canada needs to make sure um, that it has done enough to put uh, inflation back on a path towards the 2% target. And that's not clear just yet. Most of the major commercial banks are expecting a rate hike next week. 
A survey by recruitment firm Robert Half suggests a four-day work week is gaining mainstream momentum in corporate Canada. Don Kelly takes a closer look. As workplaces continue to fine-tune post-pandemic schedules and working conditions, the firm found 91% of senior managers surveyed support a four-day work week for their team. Nearly three-quarters of workers say they'd put in four 10-hour days in exchange for an extra day off each week. Robert Half says shorter work weeks could help with employee recruitment and retention and boost morale and productivity. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press, Toronto. And one more story for you this morning, following up on something we've been talking about all week long. Former Ontario Lieutenant Governor David Onley will be remembered at a state funeral on January the 30th. Brenda Melina Navidad has more details. Onley will lie in state at the legislature on January 28th and January 29th. Then a state funeral will be held at a church in Toronto on the following Monday. The current lieutenant governor announced Onley's death Saturday, saying he used his status as the province's first lieutenant governor with a physical disability to raise awareness of and help break down barriers facing other residents with disabilities. Onley, who emerged as a champion of disability rights both during and after his time in the role, was 72 years old when he died. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press, Toronto. There have been a few opportunities this week to discuss the impact and legacy of the life of David Onley. I encourage you to check out a few of the segments that we've done. On Monday, we talked about the news not long after it emerged with Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press. On Wednesday, Megan Gilmore shared her experiences and memories of spending time with David Onley. And yesterday, we spoke with David Lepofsky of the AODA Alliance, who shared just some lovely stories about his time with David Onley. So definitely encouraging you to find our podcast, if you missed those segments, to reflect a little bit more on the life of David Onley and his Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Thursday, we asked you, how much does nostalgia influence how you spend your money? 11% of you said a lot, 67% of you said a little, and 22% of you lied when you said not at all. <laughs> Today's daily poll, which you can find at Accessible Media. I like it when I've got people in studio with me, Michelle and Joita, they laugh at my jokes. It's great. It's nice to have an in-studio audience. Today's daily poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency has recalled several cheeses. There's a recall for the Le Fromage du Village and La Vache à Melotte brand soft and semi-soft surface ripened cheeses due to a possible listeria contamination. The products are distributed by Le Fromage au Village and include Angelus, Le Casamir, Le Centre de Notre Dame and the Melo Dieu cheeses and they're sold in 150 gram, 200 gram and 275 gram packages. I simply read you that story to set up today's daily poll. What do you do if a food item you buy gets recalled? Do you return it? Do you throw it out? Or do you eat it? Before I welcome Michelle and Joita into this conversation, let's go out to Burlington, Ontario to catch up with Alex Smythe. Alex, the food you bought got recalled. What are you doing? Yeah, so in most cases, I end up just throwing it out. Um, there's been a few times where I've returned it if I if I knew about it and if it wasn't too much of a hassle to return it to the store, if it was, uh, you know, a close enough uh, place or if it costs a lot of money, you know, there was one time I, I got a big frozen bag of uh, fresh cut mangoes from Costco and I literally got it home and there was a recall within a week. It's like, well, 
I haven't even eaten any of these ones yet. Okay, I'll, re I'll return it and I'll get my uh, refund or exchange for it. Whereas, you know, oftentimes if it's just, oh, well, I've had this for a while, oh, it's recalled, okay, I'm just going to toss it out. Th obviously, there's been times where I've eaten it, not on purpose, not once I've known that it was <laughs> recalled, but uh, obviously if I don't know that it's recalled, I'm probably eating it. But I, I wouldn't do it on purpose. Let's, let's be clear about that. My threshold is about $10. If I have to schlep it back all the way to the grocery store and wait in line with the grade unwashed to go return it somewhere, I'm not super keen on doing that. So about $10 is my limit. Uh, typically, I'm going to throw it out, although there was a Miss Vicky's recall in November of 2020, and I chanced it, and I chanced it, and I regretted it. I definitely got hit with whatever was wrong with those chips. <laughs> unpleasant day of the next day. Very unpleasant day of the next day. I don't have a date <laughs> Michelle, I remember these things because I ate them during the U.S. election, the U.S. presidential election on the uh, on November I mean, 2020. I mean, that's fair. You need coping mechanisms for those kinds of events. <laughs> a big bottle of red wine and some Miss Vicky's <laughs> chips that were just a little bit recalled. Rest just a little champions. bit recalled. Yeah, absolutely. So, Michelle, what do you do? What do you do if something you buy gets recalled? Uh, I wish I could say to always take the high road in return, but I don't. Uh, a lot of the time... Actually, my shopping is done through a, one of the grocery delivery services anyway, so I don't always have a physical location to take things back to if they do get recalled. Um, big ups to my grocery service. This hasn't happened at all, actually, yet. But nice. uh, by and large, I would probably be the guy throwing things out and feeling guilty about it. <laughs> Jumina, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I haven't really had that happen to me in, in quite a while, actually. And I would probably just end up throwing things out as well, unless, of course, it was a really high-priced food item. Yeah. I don't know, mm. if they had a recall on tins of caviar or something. That's what I wonder about some of these cheeses, right? I actually wonder about some of these cheeses, because sometimes you go to that fancy cheese aisle of the grocery store, and yeah. it is like 15 bucks for a 200-gram thing of cheese. Yeah. Then you might actually go back and return it. Yeah. Although I've probably already eaten it. I've probably eaten it all <laughs> yeah, the walk Cheese doesn't last in my shelf life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The shelf life on cheese, it's a, it's a limited opportunity. Uh, guys, thank you for your thoughts on this one. If you want to vote, you can vote at Accessible Media on Twitter or at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. And uh, don't forget, you can also email in your responses, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or go old school. Pick up the phone and give us a ring ding ding. 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. 45-45. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We're starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's cloudy and more a chance for more snow today. The high is one, and there is a winter storm warning in effect for snor more snow starting later this evening and into tomorrow. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's snow falling throughout the day and up to 10 centimeters is expected. The high is zero, it's feeling like minus three, and there's a snowfall warning in effect for the area. In Montreal, Quebec, there's snow and blowing snow today. Wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus one, but because of that wind, it's feeling like minus 10. In Ottawa, Ontario, there's light snow and possible freezing rain today. Up to two centimeters of snow is expected to fall. The highest minus two, feeling like minus nine. In Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or rain today, depending where you are. And the high is one degrees. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's sunny but cool. It's minus eight as a high, minus 17 with that wind chill. 
In Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly cloudy with the possibility of some light snow in the forecast. Minus 6 is the high and minus 15 with that wind chill. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's mainly sunny today. Minus 5 is the high and with that wind chill, it makes it feel quite cool at minus 21. In Calgary, Alberta, it's another warm and fairly pleasant day. It's mainly cloudy and a high of 2 degrees. To Edmonton, Alberta now, it's a mix of sun and clouds, clearing by noon. The high is 2 degrees, but feeling like minus 12. Up in Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's sunny but cold as well. It's minus 14 as a high, minus 24 with that wind chill. Over to Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy, but you're finally going to get some sun because it's going to become a mix of sun and clouds later near uh, in the afternoon, and the high is 6 degrees. And then finally in Victoria, BC, it's cloudy, becoming a mix of sun and clouds later in the afternoon, and a high of 7 degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, the news panel kicks off after a Newfoundland and Labrador food charity announced it would be closing its doors. We take a closer look at food insecurity in Canada. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, so that means we assemble the weekly news panel. You already heard from the panelists in the first segment of the show, but let's say hello to them one more time. Good morning, Joita Gupta. Good morning, Dave Brown. And hello, Michelle McQuaig. Hello, friends. <laughs> I'm going to have to figure this out, actually, when I do bring you guys in in this first segment, to maybe make this introduction a little less formal, but yeah. we'll, we'll work that out in the post-show meeting. Don't Hi, worry. Everyone. Let's uh, jump right into the first topic, gang. We were talking about food recalls in the Daily poll, but let's talk about food insecurity in Canada in this moment. First Food Newfoundland, or First Food NL, says it will shut down its community food helpline in March because of a lack of funding and overwhelming demand. CEO Josh Schmee says the answer is not to fund the helpline, but to boost people's incomes through increases to welfare and the minimum wage so people can afford to buy groceries. Nick Saul with Community Food Centres Canada agrees with Schmee's appeal. He says food charity is not the solution to Canada's growing health crisis. Joita, I'm sure everybody in this room can agree that food banks and food charities should not be the long-term solution to food insecurity, but what's your reaction to some actually shuddering and saying, no, don't fund us? Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting situation to be in. I mean, they're clearly making a political statement, um, and maybe you could argue that the statement is long overdue, because food banks, as you've noted, were never intended to be a solution to hunger. Um, and yet they have become a, uh, the go-to for a lot of people. Uh, food banks are overtaxed and overused. We know that food bank use went up across Canada during the pandemic, mm. but was already at records high, record high before the pandemic. And so the root causes are income inequality and um, the fact that people aren't getting a living wage. Those problems are there. So they're clearly making a statement, some would argue a bold statement. Uh, this food helpline was providing gift cards uh, to people that would enable them to purchase food, but they said the demand had far outstripped supply and they mm. didn't really feel that they could do much more than they were doing. Uh, and yet, 
Although I applaud anyone for, for ever taking a political stand of any kind, sort of, um, I um, also worry about the implications of, of, the, of the service closing. Because in the short term, yeah, people yeah. will be hurt by this. I, I love that you use the expression short term there. I was going to get into this, the idea of short term solutions, medium term solutions, long term solutions. In the short term, this is going to have a massive, massive impact on people. Michelle, what do you make of, of sort of the particularity of this story fitting into the broader picture? Yeah, I, I share Joita's kind of mixed reactions here in that I, I do have concerns. And, and to be fair, they're well aware of all this, that they, they know that this is going to have impact. They talked about how difficult this kind of decision was for them. Um, I do have mixed feelings around food banks closing at this time because we know not, not only are we still dealing with the same underlying factors that were in play long before the pandemic, but the pandemic exacerbated those things. Uh, we now have inflationary pressures brought to bear on the situation, which is not going to help matters for mm. a lot of people. So I do definitely have concerns. And at the same time, though, this is prompting a very important conversation. Food banks have been held up for a really long time. I think the term I most often see applied to it is a successful failure. Uh, a system that was meant to be a stopgap and that has now become really, really entrenched in our food delivery system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the kind of conversation that these kind of things are forcing, but conversation really isn't enough when you're already hungry. Yeah, you mentioned the inflationary pressure. The data came out this week from StatsCan saying, hey, inflation's going down a little bit broadly, but food inflation year Not over year was still things. at 11%, which is just a staggering, staggering number. And there are a multitude of factors that, that lead into that, but it's it's something that really jumps off the page when it's double what the rest of inflation is. And like that inflation number that we're looking at that went down a little bit in terms of month over month, the fact is it was dragged up if you think about the context of groceries and what a staple of bills that, that is for people. People. Exactly. So, so one of the, the propositions put forward here, Joita, you mentioned it, that there, there, there's something political about it that says higher wages, living wages, and raising social assistance payments. We've talked ourselves till we're blue in the face on the show, talking about how social assistance payments are too low. But is the solution, Joita, as simple as just saying, put more money in people's pockets? And there's nothing simple about it because if it had been simple, we'd have done it already. <laughs> you know, uh, and I and I can I, I do understand where you're going with the with your question and what your point is. Uh, but the reality is, we are in the situation because of political decisions and the consequences of political decisions or indecision. Um, and so, yes, the answer is as simple as uh, raising social assistance rates. Uh, not just in Ontario where I am, but across the country, those rates are far below what they, where they need to be, mm -hmm. having conversations about paying people a living wage. There are activists who've been saying that the minimum wage needs to go up. And we also need to maybe have serious conversations in this country about broader applications of universal basic income programs yeah. for people. Yeah. So all of those measures are going to go to the root of the problem. The other really good example that, you know, that runs in parallel to food banks is uh, our homeless shelters. They were never intended as, an, as, a, as a solution to homelessness, and yet they have become equally entrenched. And how do you tackle food and housing at the same time? Well, you, you, you tackle it largely by addressing the income question. Um, so, yes, I would say, is it that simple? Well, clearly, we're in this position because no one has really put the political 
If not, people haven't really put their money where their mouths are, but that's probably what needs to happen. Yeah, it's pretty staggering when you see people blaming inflationary pressures purely on wages, on minimum wage increases, <laughs> when we know there's something totally different going on there. Uh, Michelle, before I hand you the opportunity to react mm. to this as well, I, Joita and I are maybe on a little bit of a common thread here because, Joita, you mentioned housing. And this is part of the picture that gets left out of all these other inflationary and insecurity and economic questions. Just the raw cost of putting a roof over your head in Canada right now, it drives so many of these other issues. So when I was mentioning this idea of short versus medium versus long-term solutions, mm -hmm. housing is a long-term thing. The fact is you just can't put up houses in a day. You need to have planning, get land, get permits, get zoning, all that stuff. But the fact is in the short and medium term, things like better social assistance, better wages, that's a good start. That's maybe even a short to medium term thing, but we do need these, we still do need food charities in the meantime time mm -hmm. but fundamentally fundamentally so many of the pressures that we're seeing across the economy and specifically in food insecurity because food is one of the things that you have to buy every day this can be solved by better affordable housing and lots of affordable mm -hmm. housing yeah. and a more a more welcoming inclusive housing market I, I, like, and I don't mean like buying the beautiful family home in the suburbs I mean just letting people live in a reasonable apartment for mm -hmm. not two thousand dollars a month exactly. depending on where you live in the country mm -hmm. sorry Michelle I preambled a lot on you there without giving you an opportunity to deal with the sort of simplicity no. of simply saying raise, raise wages raise social assistance no it's all good I mean I, I agree with all of what, what you've been saying here is that at core uh, those who are a lot more expertise on this say, yeah, that really is the, the crux of the issue is, is raising some of these things. But I would argue that it goes a little bit beyond that in that the way things are framed politically will probably have to change them. Uh, there are some countries, and not, not communist ones, even though you're going to probably think I'm a card-carrying member when I say this, but there are countries where food and maybe eventually housing are treated more as a right than as a mm -hmm. commodity. And that kind of sea change, I think, would have to underpin the, the shift in thinking that would need to happen in order for this sort of uh, change to, to really take effect. You would need to uh, fundamentally approach the system in a very different way. Mm. There are strong cases to be made for it. It, ca it can and has been done successfully. There's no one with zero hunger, but countries like Norway have been modeling different approaches with, with a fair bit of success. So there are different approaches out there that have not been adopted here. And uh, I think that would that would really need to start to to kick in, and I, I suspect that that's what some of these food bank advocates are hoping, because that's been their message. There's been a real shift in the communication coming out of these charities that are meant to stop the, the gaps in the, the food system. Um, not just the one that's closing its doors in March, other ones. This is now the unifying message that we're hearing. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 they're calling for structural change because mm, yeah. they've because food banks have become a structural part of the way we're dealing with hunger in this country, and that's not an appropriate use of it. It's, it's like how we talk about public libraries. We're all supporters here of public libraries, but all of a sudden public libraries start wearing seven or seven or eight different social assistance hats and it becomes too much. Exactly. So let's open up the doors for the first time in 2023 of Dave Brown Consulting. Oh and my. Knowing that we're not necessarily <laughs> experts in this field, we certainly have ideas and we certainly interact within our communities. In terms of changes that you might want to make more broadly to offer better food security in Canada, I've got a couple that come to mind. One is just more community gardens. 
I think that would be something that could go a long, long way. And we do have enough space, whether it be on the tops of apartment buildings, whether it be in park green spaces, I think just general community gardens, there would be a lot of volunteers who would be really eager to be part of that. Now, again, these aren't, these aren't long-term solutions, these are short-term solutions, but to get more food and get more community engagement, more community building, and the other component, I believe it was Food Banks Canada who released a report in December talking about the number of children experiencing hunger being on a significant increase. I think that's a, that's an area where perhaps we need to be looking at more robust school breakfast mm -hmm. and lunch programs. Um, that would be something that I would say that could be delivered structurally by provinces. Again, it, it's a political decision. It's a very political decision. It takes money. It takes resources. But that might be a place to bridge some of these gaps as well. Uh, Michelle, what do you think structurally or more broadly things that could change? Yeah. I, we, we... Those are those are great ones, um, and I think even the community gardens could be tied into some of those school programs. You could have some mm. overlap with those, and, and there are some schools who have taken on projects like that, and it seems to be a really fulfilling experience for all concerned. Um, so that that could that could work. Basic income in terms of broader solutions is one that uh, Joita already raised, and one that's been bandied about a lot, and I think that is worth a lot of consideration. Um, the other thread, though, it's not so much an idea, but the other factor that I, I kind of wanted to get in my last answer, so forgive me for squeezing it in here, but I think it's part of any kind of solutions conversation is that climate change needs to be part of the mix in terms of discussing mm. these things. That does play a role in current food insecurity, even though there's a lot of fascinating science that suggests that food scarcity is not the issue. It's, it's fundamentally uh, unevenly distributed. But climate change does bring a lot of additional pressure on the system. So climate change mitigation strategies... Um, and, and reduction targets and whatnot may also eventually play a role in, in helping to tackle this issue. Yeah, the executive director of the World Food Program was in Davos, Switzerland this year, uh, this week at the World Economic Forum and specifically talked about climate change, particularly drought conditions in parts of Africa as well as in Asia that were very much impacting the overall picture for famine and global hunger. So I know this conversation is food insecurity in Canada, but certainly when we talk about our food supply chains, a lot of that food comes from elsewhere in the world because we can't uh, make orange trees in Canada because well, our climate doesn't work. Like, well, prairies have had to contend with some severe droughts in recent years yes. and that does affect things here mm -hmm. so you know we we do think of climate change and food insecurity as more of a far-flung issue but it's not necessarily uh, berry farms in the lower mainland got yeah. destroyed by atmospheric rivers in british columbia exactly. a couple of years in a row which ended up being a huge problem uh Joita, in terms of some broader solutions i heard you uh give a nice aff affirming mm -hmm when i said community gardens but what else comes to mind for yes, you yes definitely the community gardens uh because remember in days gone by when people when i'm going to come back to housing for a second when housing was cheaper and people could afford actual houses with backyards if you didn't have money to buy food, you could potentially grow food. So yeah, it was a very much yeah. a part of people's day-to-day -day, uh, reality, and that reality doesn't exist uh, as much anymore because most of us don't have backyards anymore and probably can't afford to have one. So uh, besides that, um, I think we might want to also have a talk about um, dealing with food waste issues and Great a lot point. of food getting Great thrown point. out. So um, there are, I know, a number of innovative apps and companies that are rerouting food uh, especially to food banks, because I think one of the other conversations, the side pieces around here, is the kind of food that people can get at food banks. Uh, they don't often get a lot of fresh produce. You're looking at a lot of uh, tins and cans and uh, packaged goods. Um, that's what you get when you go to a food bank. And there's always been this immense shortage and need for fresh produce, and mm -hmm. a lot of that gets mm -hmm. chucked because it's perishable and a lot of people don't want to buy it because the apple is bruised and they think, oh, yuck, I don't want that on my table. 
That's one issue. And I think the other one is recognizing the realities of food. When it comes down to food uh, versus housing, you have to pay your rent. You have to pay your mortgage. But often when people are poor, they're cutting back on food. But even if you're cutting back on food, there are things you just cannot cut back on. Cooking oil, salt, rice and grains and other land and legumes, yeah, uh, beans. Yeah. There are essential foods that you, you cannot cut back on, uh, even if you wanted to. You might drop the meat and the fish and the eggs and maybe not buy cheese or milk. But there are things that the government might consider subsidizing because, um, and there was some excellent reporting done about this, about how people said, you know, vegetable oil is now 12 to $15 a, a bottle. Wow. And we wow. can't afford that. So some targeted subsidies towards uh, the producers of specific foods or crops might actually try to tackle the, the inflationary issue at its root, as it were. That's a really, really thoughtful point. Joita, thank you for sharing that. Michelle, thank you for your thoughts on this one as well. But it's time to move on to our next topic. Coming up next, we'll talk about some of the ethics around working remotely from home, specifically in the context of time theft. A story out of British Columbia will prompt that conversation. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Let's address the next topic. A tribunal has ordered a British Columbia accountant to pay her former employer more than $2,600 after tracking software showed she engaged in time theft while working from home. The tribunal says her employer compared the woman's timesheets with the software's data over a month between late February and March and found she claimed 50 hours during which it appeared she was not working. Joita, that's just the thumb sketch, the really broad thumb sketch of the story. But what do you find interesting about this one? There's a couple of things. I think this story represents a broader trend where employers seem to be looking for more ways to supervise workers. This, this is not something that is a result of the pandemic and the move towards work from home. Employees are being tracked for a very long time. And I observed yesterday um, that often it was workers, blue-collar workers, think couriers or uh, delivery people who were being tracked, uh, you know, using GPS. When are you dropping things off? How fast are you delivering packages? Are you, how many bathroom breaks are you taking? And I feel like what's happened now is that what I would call a blue-collar problem has somehow become a white-collar problem as well. And it comes with a range of very complicated implications. I think we can all perhaps agree that the not the least of which is the privacy violations mm. inherent in this. But it goes well beyond that um, because we are looking at a very crude instrument being used to make some pretty big decisions about exactly how productive someone is being at work. Michelle, you and I have had a conversation going on about this story for about a week now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you believe some of the broader implications are? Yeah, the broader implications all, I honestly have a lot to do with, I think, with how sustainable remote work is going to be because it cuts to a, a really fundamental trust issue. Um, this is, I find it interesting that it took a white collar problem to come before the courts, even though, as Joita quite rightly points out, this is something that's been going on a really long time mm -hmm. with, with, with people in, in lower income positions. Uh, warehouse workers is another one that comes to mind that gets a lot of electronic surveillance. Mm -hmm. 
But a ruling like this broadens the conversation and, and takes it into a realm where monitoring is harder to do. When you, when you don't necessarily have a GPS app that can be enlisted, you're having companies who are taking more proactive steps to monitor through, through different means. And that kind of thing really exposes the inherent trust at the heart of a lot of remote working and hybrid model working relationships that are now much more common than they were before. So that's why I suspect this kind of story has resonated in a way that it might not have three years ago. Mm. That, that's, but it's, it's, a, it's a tricky one because you have, on one hand, you, you do have a clear privacy violation in terms of the, the kind of monitoring that takes place. BC does not necessarily have a law that requires employers to be transparent about their monitoring efforts. We can talk more about laws later. On the other hand, though, you do have a breach of the employer's trust. Uh, the the, the counter-argument, and the judge accepted as fact, the fact that the, the work being claimed was not in accordance with the work being done. Mm -hmm. That is a problem mm -hmm. in and of itself. So you really do have strong issues and strong arguments to be confronted on both sides. Even though I only gave the thumbnail sketch of this story, I suppose a few more details could be relevant in the way at least we frame this. Yeah. The case was brought before the tribunal by the person, by the employee, who eventually had to pay back the company because they felt they were wrongfully terminated by the company. And the company said in response, they used this data saying, you weren't wrongfully terminated. We had you in meetings about performance lacking. And here's maybe some evidence where you were logged in and not doing your work, or there's and, not a tangible yeah. deliverable on the work that you're doing. And if I can jump in, what, what the evidence was is they said, your timesheets claimed 50 additional hours that we can't account for over the course of one month. So that is, like, that's too full not work days, that's two full, that's an actual work week and yeah. change of, of additional time. So we're talking about a fairly significant number in the course of one Julia, month. Julia, it sounds like you want to quibble with that a little I, bit. I don't want to quibble so much with the number, but I think it does sort of raise uh, flags about how it is that we're actually monitoring the way people do their work. Um, a lot of people, what these, these the, what the software basically does, um, this is a very simplified explanation, is track how often you're clicking your, your mouse or typing on your keyboard and, uh, they're not really accounting for periods of inactivity. Now, I'm not quibbling with whether it was 50 hours or whether they were right or wrong in this case, although a number of legal experts have felt that the adjudicator in this instance may have overreached with making the decision that he did. But the fact of the matter is not everybody does their job, um, A, on the computer. There are still people who need to work with hard copies, which is one of the things this woman said she did. But beyond that, not everybody is always spending their time. I know we have this like picture in our minds of this uh, this office worker bent over their laptop, typing away frantically. But the reality is a lot of work requires thinking. It might require research. It might require, you know, a bunch of activities that the software doesn't fully grasp. Mm -hmm. And so you, mm -hmm. you might actually be looking at getting into these weird, it's a bit like a virtual panoptagon. You remember the panoptagon and, you know, how they, they, that's how they would... Are we kind talking of, about Foucault? Are we talking, we're about, talking Foucault about Friday morning? We are talking Foucault. I've not Friday. had enough coffee for this conversation. <laughs> but, you know, basically, it's a way of, 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 of surveilling workers. Um, and you have to wonder about the implications of that when workers feel like they're being monitored every minute of every day. And, I mean, uh, I'm a salaried employee and... Uh, I suspect maybe one or if not both of you are also. And and the reality is you can't break people's work down like that. It doesn't come down to how many emails you send or how many times you click your mouse or how many windows you have open on your laptop. There are the the value of a work of someone's work is measured very differently. And I don't think that a software, however sophisticated, can ever 
can never truly genuinely replicate that. So the yeah. implications are much go much beyond this particular case. I'll, I'll push back a little bit because fundamentally yeah. I think I agree with you, Joita. Like productivity can't be measured in time. I, don't, I, don't, I think that, I think that it's, it's a misconception that you can measure productivity in time. Some people work really quick, some people work a little bit slower. That's just the way it is. I do think you can measure it in output though. And mm -hmm. in accounting, I think exactly. output is clear. And if they already warned this person about their performance, I imagine that was an output issue where they said, oh man, these deadlines are unreasonable. I can't get all this work done. And then on your timesheet, it shows that there was 50 hours of idle time off your computer. And again, not knowing what was being tracked here precisely, it, it does at least imply that perhaps this was not the model employee who should be the person who should be the person held up in, in defending workers' rights inside yeah. the remote model. But but I do take what you're saying, Juita, and, and I will say this, and I mentioned this earlier in the week when Alex Smith and I were talking about it, there needs to be a better understanding of what is your personal device versus what is a mm -hmm. work device. We've reached the point now where we're almost three years into the work from home model for those who've gotten to work from home or be involved in a remote model. It should be incumbent upon companies or businesses to give people the necessary supp electronic supplies. And then if you're gonna be monitored on a work computer or a work phone, that should sort of be an implication. That should sort of be understood. But if it's a personal device that they're installing this tracking software on, that's where I'll start saying, yeah, we have to really make sure we're protecting employees' personal devices. And, and I think that's the whole, the whole crux of this is that there is no that there is no broad solution that can be applied here. There are so many different work contexts and and different kinds of scenarios and work styles and 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 work tasks. And and now we've got this various pieces of software and maybe various means of tracking. There's an infinite number of combinations for all these things. I completely agree with your primary point, Joey, that there is no universal way to measure productivity, but that also means there's no real universal way to have this conversation. And I wanted to pick up on something Dave said earlier, which is, uh, you know, the, the distinction between a personal and a work device is an important one. And I think a lot of workers should, if, I, if they're getting work devices, not just, it should not just be implied that they're being tracked. They should be told. It's a really important consideration because uh, it's not something that extends to a lot of workers. In Ontario, they have legislation that says if, if you have a workplace with more than 25 people, then you tell people. What about the rest of us? And it's not just software on your phone or your, uh, or your, uh, your laptop tracking how many websites you've been on and how often you're on your keyboard and how many mouse clicks you, you put <laughs> yeah. in. It can go much beyond that. Yeah. It, can be, it has frightening implications. They can turn on your camera without turning on the little light. They can actually here into your home. They could have the microphone at, on and maybe monitoring your conversations over Zoom meetings. These, the, the privacy violations here are huge. The problem is the pandemic took everybody by surprise. We made all of these big changes and now the chickens have come home to roost and we are not as, uh, we're not really seeing uh, a way to tackle these problems in a satisfactory fashion. What we are seeing is a case out of BC where a woman either rightly or wrongly got penalized for, um, for stealing time from her employer, and that's opened up this whole other can of worms. What's really wild about the Ontario legislation is that it's the only kind, it's the only one of its kind in Canada. Mm -hmm. No other province has a law in place that says, okay, employers of a certain size, you must be transparent about what electronic monitoring steps you're taking against your employees. Ontario is the only one that has that right now, and that is the extent of the law. It doesn't even address privacy considerations. So we're at such a preliminary point in these conversations that we don't even know the bulk of the essential facts as yet. It's crazy. And if you don't mind me jumping in a little bit more, Dave, Please. I think we're missing the, re I think as between the three of us, this point 
should be made by one of us. So I'll make it. This is a very ableist assumption that oh, people yeah, oh work my God, yes. in, a, in a particular way. You know the amount of time I've spent over the years at work dealing with my jaws freezing on my computer? Yeah. What that are the people with episodic disabilities? Yeah, episodic make? disabilities, the blue screen of death. Any, if you run any kind of assistive technology in your computer, it, unless you're running a Mac, but most companies don't give you Macs, they'll give you a PC, it automatically slows down your computer. I mean, there are tons of implications for people with disabilities. We know remote work has been a game changer for people with disabilities. And this is going to be a way that they're going to come back and say, uh-uh, remote work isn't working. Not only can you not trust people with disabilities, uh, you cannot, can you not trust people in general to work from home? Let's bring them all back to the office. Do you think because, it's that dire yet? No, but you know, I think that's where this is coming from. I think uh, employers are now looking at, to, to, uh, this is a pushback against remote work. We can't trust people from work. You see, they're stealing time. They're slacking off. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And think about what the implications for people with disabilities are. If even, if, even if we sidestep those arguments and say no remote work still is a viable option, by virtue of having a disability, maybe you're visually impaired. I, you know, I have a laptop from work. It has Windows on it. And it uses JAWS. Maybe you, know, you put a piece of software on there and you track my work. Maybe just because my computer's running a bit slower, I'll work less pro productively than an able-bodied yeah. worker. Uh, it's I, variable. I, I still want to come back to output versus time, though, right? That, that I think that output is something that matters here, that how you get the job done mm -hmm. matters. But there is an incongruency, especially as we've moved towards more remote models where some people are in, some people are out, some people are working on their own time, and some people are working on this. I'll tell you, working from a team environment, because we do work on a very team environment here, those incongruencies can make our jobs harder, especially as those of us who have to come in every day, where everything needs to be done via email or done via this or done via that when it could have been really easy to shout down the hallway hey we need this right so I, I I do think that people do need to understand that although remote remote work is viable and it has been a game changer for certain people with disabilities it is still something that like creates an incongruency mm -hmm. uh, we're only now maybe only getting an opportunity to truly measure what productivity was with remote working and the one concern i'll come back to the incongruency here that perhaps this is part of a larger account in this case there's perhaps part of a larger accounting team and when this person wasn't maybe getting their work done in a timely fashion it holds up the process for everybody else there's a domino effect so Absolutely. like I'm, I'm taking your i'm taking your your ableist position like as fair game, Juida, I think that's well, I think it's good to raise it, but I think it's also fair to say that if we're going to continue to walk down the remote work pathway and the and the hybrid remote work pathway, there do need to be some expectations and assumptions of what it is to be a good team player. Mm -hmm. that, that goes without saying, remote or otherwise. I mean, if you're the person in a non-remote work environment, if everybody else is slaving away at their desk and you are taking a coffee break and sauntering off with Tim Hortons, that's not... That's not. Yeah. That's a. That that is just being a collegial and being a good yeah. employee and being a good coworker. But you understand that would be oh, how no. that would be more observable, right? Yeah, like, of course. Like th that's something that can be sort of, of tracked in, the, an, in but an informal way. Yeah, of course. But I will push back and say that if that's your concern, if uh, you know the efficacy of a team is your concern, maybe putting in a crude bit of tracking software is not the answer. Maybe there we have to have bigger conversations about how workplaces adapt to keep that team. Uh, viable and talking to each other and working as a single unit when we make that pivot to remote work. Ironically, Michelle and I were having a chat about this just this morning before then, the show. And of course, bad apples exist in every scenario, no matter what. Mm -hmm. And and I would share Joita's view that electronic monitoring software is not the approach to imp to implement yeah. because of one potentially bad apple mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. that's bound to pop up in any workplace, regardless. But 
it's it's a very difficult conversation, and I feel like we're at a really interesting flexion point with this one, just because so much of it is it's such a nascent field in a lot of ways in terms of case law, in terms of of, of precedents, in terms of disclosures. Um, like I said earlier, there's just there is so much we don't know. This we, there's only now this one piece of sort of tribunal case law that's come up, and it's built on a, a an employee that isn't necessarily upholding all the uh, remote work principles that we would like to see as yeah. <laughs> Um So it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm a little this, hesitant. This employee maybe becomes the straw man, the, the, mm -hmm. the straw man utilized to beat up on the notion of remote work as, as a is, viable uh, thing. Which is also grossly unfair. Like, like it, it's hard to draw implications on such a huge issue from one case is all I'm saying. And yeah. I'm, I'm I will push back a little bit on the notion that we are absolutely for sure headed down a path of doom. Not necessarily is what I'm saying. There's a lot that needs to fall into place first. A lot more information even needs to be mm -hmm. had before we know how to frame the conversation yeah, in the most productive yeah. way. Uh, unsurprisingly, already running low on time here, but I want to give uh, each of you an opportunity to maybe offer one solution you might think that could be there to protect either employers or employees. What do you think, Michelle? We need some privacy legislation to, uh, to help regulate some of Okay, that's where I would lend to. Joita? Privacy legislation. For Boom, the for the win. <laughs> Trifecta. Okay, that's all the time we have on this one. Coming up next, we'll take a look at some new alcohol consumption guidelines by the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. This is the Now News, this is the now news Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Dave Brown, joined by Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. There's one more topic to chug on today. New guidance from the Canadian Centre for Substance Use and Addiction says people should only be having two alcoholic drinks per week. They're also recommending that warning labels be placed on bottles and cans. Previous guidance suggested people could have 10 to 15 drinks per week. Michelle, why'd this story stand out to you? How could it not? This is uh, something that a lot of people have been talking about since it dropped. And I think it's fair to offer a little bit of context when they talk about what constitutes one drink. We're not talking about a stiff one here. We're talking about a beer, a glass of wine of a specific type of measurement. I think it's 142 milliliters and one shot of spirits. So that is what they're recommending is no more than two of those per oh, week. Oh, my God. So that... Um, I dare say, represents a pretty big shift for a lot of people. <laughs> uh, even those who, who don't feel like alcohol is a particular vice of theirs might be inclined to say, oh, but I have a glass of wine with dinner like four times a week. That's a lot more than what they're now recommending. It's also a huge shift from the last set of guidelines, which were released about 12 years ago. Now, they, uh, the people who drafted those guidelines saying that they're now responding to science, so they're calling this an evidence-driven shift which is uh, ostensibly something we all look for. But it has a lot of uh, personal repercussions for people. It raises questions about the kind of science that goes into this and, and how often these guidelines should be adapted. I just thought it might be one that we uh, would have lots to say about. <laughs> Joanna, your reaction in general to the change in uh, advice here? Um, it's interesting to see how extensive the consultation process was and the review process was. They did consult about 6,000 journals and at public consultation processes, though. They've been pretty in-depth. And while it's always interesting to examine the science, it's also noting this is how science is done. They find new things, they observe new trends, and they revise the advice. And 
Remember, in the 1950s or 60s, there was no advice telling you that smoking was bad for you. Everybody was smoking. In fact, if you were a woman, you were even encouraged to smoke, stay slim. Uh, but that advice has changed, and uh, and of course now smoking has completely uh, that our attitude towards smoking and smokers has mm -hmm. by and large mm -hmm. generally changed. So you know, I I, I don't um, I'm, not, I'm not a big drinker myself, so it hasn't got too many implications for me personally. Uh, but I think remembering that these are just guidelines is really important. If you are someone who really wants a glass of wine with dinner and you want to do that four times a week, that's your business. I think the more interesting question for me is almost around the implications for insurance um, and how they assess claims uh, yeah, based on yeah. this revised advice. I mean, I don't know enough about the workings of insurance to get into the weeds, but I almost feel like you know people are people are people, and they're going to do what they want to do. Uh, but the um, but there is a lot of science to back this up, linking alcohol you know consumption with a range of cancers, for example, and not a lot of science that contradicts. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I think I think people always knew there was an inherent danger in consuming alcohol in terms of what those individual numbers might be in terms of what you could have per week. That's that's changed over the over the course of time as well. Prohibition in the 1920s changed that. There was a time when the average American male drank two pints of whiskey a day uh, after the after the Civil War in the 18, 1870s. So you know there and there used to be a time when uh, people used to drink cider and alcohol uh, during the day instead of coffee and water because it was safer mm -hmm. to drink cider and, and alcohol and beer so so there you know there's different social uh, connections that change here but we are probably trying to move towards a healthier society and a place that specializes in addiction and alcohol use and substance abuse control they're probably going to come in with more conservative numbers even if it's based on science than perhaps your general public health policy um, the warning labels side of this strikes me as interesting because I always thought it was strange that they didn't have warning labels on alcohol as it's Stood. Yeah. Michelle, what do, what do you make of that one? Yeah, it, it kind of ties into my reaction to the guidelines over, overall, is that this is something, this is, this is a, a legally offered substance that benefits the government directly in, in most provinces and territories. So in light of all those factors, I do feel it, it makes a lot of sense to be transparent about what the risks are. And as our understanding of those risks expands through science, um, I do feel there's a time and a place for that kind of thing, and that time and place is, is now. Uh, there's... I think people tend to to gloss over the potential risks because alcohol is a legally offered substance and, mm -hmm. and people don't mm -hmm. necessarily have those conversations. And I have to admit, I, I've always been a little bit cynical about the, the value of warning labels on things like cigarette packaging or calorie listings on menus, for instance. But there is all kinds of evidence to suggest that they work. And even if I think about it anecdotally, it does work. It can give you pause if you're directly confronted yeah. with that kind of message right away. So in, in light of all those factors, I do think the warning label conversation is a really interesting one. And that certainly seems to be one of the most prominent takeaways from this whole situation, whether people agree with the guidelines or not. And so far, any kind of disagreement is falling along very predictable industry lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but even for those who, who take exception to the new guidelines and the new metrics, warning labels seem to be a little bit better received and we have the the whole cigarette campaign as mm -hmm. an analogy to fall back on for Can this one cannabis cigarettes like there's exactly. lots of warnings out there yeah I, I i'm going to use a dangerous term so please nobody attack me as i use it um the notion of informed consent that if, if the government is going to get into the distribution of vice product, whether that be legalized gambling, whether that be cannabis, whether that be cigarettes, whether that be alcohol, once you sort of say we are, we are legalizing this and allowing this to be publicly consumed, 
it is fair to say, but if we're going to let you do this, we at least want to let you know there's some risks involved. Mm -hmm. And that's become one of the sides. I know I'm, I'm, I'm switching vice on you guys here, but if anybody watches any TV, you you encounter all the online uh, sports gambling commercials that are going on right now. And that is a vice that the government has legalized and allowed, but there's not necessarily the warnings going along with it. It's like, bet on the game, bet on the game, bet on yeah. the game, bet yeah. on the game. You're going to have so much more fun if you bet on the game, bet on the game, bet mm -hmm. on the game. So to offer these kinds of informed consents and warning, I think is just generally a good idea, oh, Joanna. Sure. And that's a, that's a huge case for, say, legalizing cannabis, is that now you don't have, don't have to worry about discrete packaging and making some kind of illicit mm -hmm. transaction behind closed doors, you can be upfront about your consumption and the risks that go with it. Yes. As discreet as a Ziploc bag can be. Uh, Joanna. No, but seriously. No, like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's, she's, she's absolutely right. And I agree. I mean, I think the government often benefits from these situations, uh, from, from legalizing, um, you know, the, the wine and, and beers and other spirits in particular. So why shouldn't there be a warning? I mean, there was a really good quote in the Toronto Star article I read about this, where the, 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 um, person basically said, you know, we believe in putting labels on our products because we want our consumers not to end up dead or or injured or drunk. So I think the warning labels need to go a bit, I mean, the, the, the industry has pushed back saying we, we already warn people, but I do think we need to go a bit farther than drink responsibly. And I think this is definitely going yeah, to right. Drink responsibly is not a warning, mean? sorry. Yeah. Like, yeah. Not. yeah, drink responsibly. <laughs> but, a yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know what I'd love to see? I would actually, because I drink a lot of beer. I'm willing to say that on the air. Anyone who listens to the show knows Dave drinks a lot of beer. Uh, a lot of beers don't have nutritional information printed on the can, like sure. just in terms of your calories, right? Mm -hmm. Like how many calories am I consuming when I pound back this Miller Lite? Turns out about 90. So, hey, rock and roll. We're, uh, we're, we're living it the healthy way. We're drinking my health juice, my Miller Lights. Um, but <laughs> but uh, let's let, whether it be these guidelines specifically or whether it be guidelines more generally, Joita, how do health guidelines or health suggestions influence you as a consumer? Um, I do take it seriously. Um, I tend to follow the advice and it can get a little muddlesome because sometimes you get contradictory advice. Um, mm -hmm. So that can be a bit of a pain. But in general, um, if you're thinking about this advice, as I said earlier on, I, I don't drink very much anyway. So uh, actually I counted, I drank a grand total of three glasses of wine last year and that was the extent of my alcohol oh, consumption. Wow. Oh, wow. I okay. really cut back during the pandemic because I didn't want to be at home drinking. <laughs> I drank three glasses of wine yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, but I think in general, public health advice, um, I want to, I, I want to move away from being skeptical of science. I think yeah, there's, this, 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 uh, there's this growing and loud minority that says, criticize everything. Um, I want to try and say that for myself, um, it is worth considering that people stake their reputations on, on, uh, putting out a public health advice. Um, and that the implications of, of certain cancers, for example, are huge. Uh, the reason that smoking cessation became such a big campaign it is not just because of the danger to smokers themselves, but also secondhand smoke. Secondhand smoke. Yeah. Now, I'll grant you that public disorderliness and, and drunkenness and, and maybe the risk of driving in, intoxicated are public problems, but maybe not to the same extent. So I don't know if this public health advice will resonate in the way that, if you think back to the smoking campaign, the smoking campaign. But it took yeah. decades. It did take decades. Uh, Michelle, last word goes yeah. to you here. We've only got about a minute. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I, have, I have found myself all week actually thinking about this because a big part of it is because it's been very evidence-based decision-making here, which I am down to support in any event, and, and the science is pretty persuasive. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I won't. It's going to count against my two. No, seriously. Well, I mean, I... I 
I'm not going to lie. It's probably not going to just be two for me, but like, <laughs> but I do think about it. it. It definitely has started to, to enter my internal conversation yeah. with this yeah. kind of thing. And I've heard it come up with a few of my friends and relatives as well. So I, I think it is going to start to land with people. It's cognizance. It's all these things. Yeah. Even even uh, things like people who aren't gluten intolerant. It's still you learn, oh, maybe gluten isn't like the most fantastic thing for you. Totally. We talked yeah. about cooking oils earlier in the hour. There are certain cooking oils that are better for you than others. Absolutely. And there's science that backs that. Guys, thank you for going a little bit of overtime with me today. I really appreciate it. Michelle, have a great weekend. And we'll talk to you on Monday. Sounds good. Take care, everybody. Joita, you have a lovely weekend as well. Thank you. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press, and Joita Gupta is the host of the Pulse on AMI-audio. That's all the time we have for this hour, but coming back after the break, I've got the regional news update, and Brock Richardson stops by for a look ahead in a busy weekend in sports. That's not, This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.